continuing where I left off two weeks ago. In the big scheme of things, we are considering really how the law of God ought to function in the life of a Christian. And what I mean by the law of God there, I mean the, the law of nature. These are synonyms that theologians have used to describe what's going on in the Bible. The law that comes to us by virtue of us being created in the image of God, the law that is natural to us because we're creatures, um, the law that was formally promulgated or published by God on two stone tablets with its unique application to ancient Israel under the Mosaic Covenant in Exodus 20, um, the law that we ought to utilize in our life to show forth our gratefulness uh, to the Lord for saving us. And we've come to the fourth commandment, and this isn't going to be a series of sermons on all ten of the Ten Commandments, which I've done before, but we're at the fourth commandment for a reason, because that's the biggie that people struggle with. Um, What do we do with the fourth commandment? And Christians do various things. Some say it's unique to ancient Israel, has nothing to do with Christians this side of the cross and resurrection of Christ. Others say, and I think this is a better way to say it, uh, that the fourth commandment, as it's found in Exodus and Deuteronomy, is just um, a a public revelation by God to to his ancient people that 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 is more actually more basic than the commandment itself. It actually starts in creations, written on our hearts, and then it's exemplified by God himself when he ceased working and when he entered into this rest. So I argued two weeks ago that the origin of the Sabbath is God. Now, I don't think anybody... I know, if you disagree with that, you have a problem with God, not me, okay? Read your Bible... And if you and if you ask the question, where did the Sabbath come from? We have to say from God. Now the question of who is it for is where we're at, though. And so last week or two weeks ago, the origin of the Sabbath, I said, well, it comes from God. And then the next question is, when did God reveal this Sabbath? We'll call it uh, a one day in seven where man is to cease from his normal activities and do something different. And I argued that God revealed that at, at creation. Not Sinai, but at creation. You remember Genesis 2, 1 through 3. Uh, And I argued this as well. If the work of God in creation is a paradigm, is an example for man to follow in, God worked only uh, the way God can. Okay, then God said, let there be light. We can work, but we can't say, let there be light. You can say it all you want, but it isn't going to cause anything to happen. It would be great as a parent to be able to speak things into existence, right? Obey me perfectly, and it happens. Wow. Okay, we're not God. So God's work is on the creator's level. Man's work is to be modeled after God's work on the creaturely level. I argued the same for rest. When it says that God rested and and blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy... Um, it, it is not that God was tired, okay? So it can't be, well, we work and get tired, therefore God worked and God got tired. The Lord, our God, does not grow weary. He does not faint. Isaiah said that, okay? So God doesn't, uh, what's that E word? Energy. Thank you, exert. I always look to Sean because he, 
he remembers things. God doesn't exert energy, and as he exerts, energy is going out from him, decreasing in him, and he has to be refueled. That's creatures. So whatever divine rest means, it can't mean that. So I argued, well, if it can't mean that, what does it mean? If you do a big study throughout the Bible and make all these connections, and there's a lot of connections to be made, it has to be, since the work of God was exemplary for man on a creaturely level, then the rest of God must be exemplary for man on a creaturely level. God worked, and then God preserved his, uh, his creation and sat enthroned upon it, as a king. It's a kingly or royal rest that God enters into. So there must be some kingly or royal rest for man that that symbolizes, and none of us have entered that kingly or royal rest, but one among us a long time ago has, our Lord Jesus. So I argued it started at creation. You have to realize that this issue of the fourth commandment is it's very important. Because around the world today, Christian congregations are gathering for public worship. We know that. Every Lord's Day it happens. Every Sunday, every first day of the week. And most Christians, if you ask them, why do Christians meet on the first day of the week? And they would say, well, it probably has something to do with, the, uh, with Jesus. That's a good answer. Uh, how about the resurrection of the Son of God? Yes. Most Christians, not thinking more deeply than that, give an astounding answer, a really profound answer. The resurrection is the historical and theological basis. The resurrection of the incarnate Son of God on the first day of the week is the historical and theological, we could say redemptive historical basis for first day meetings. That's what the bulk of the Christian church has said throughout its history until the last 100 years or so. And it's good to think that way. It's a good instinct. It's right. Okay, it's hard to put all the pieces of the biblical puzzle together on that, but it's right. Last Two weeks ago, I quoted this hymn. Let me quote it again because it's fascinating. John Newton is the author, safely through another week, even there, if John Newton was here and I would say, John, where did the, where did the seven day week from come from? And he'd say, Richard, how long have you been doing this? It comes from God. Uh, Mr. Newton, when did God institute the seventh day week? Mr. Barcellus, read your Bible. It's in the first two chapters of the Bible. The seven day week is grounded upon the actions of God in creation in, in work and rest. Thank you, John. You can go back to heaven. You know, I've had enough of you. Safely through another week. Now, I'm making a big point about this because in the last 150 years or so, um, scholars have published all kinds of things denying a Christian Sabbath. And one of their arguments is... Um, the seven-day week didn't, wasn't grounded in creation. It was first revealed to ancient Israel in the wilderness. And when I read that, I flew to the place where the man who wrote it, wrote it and I kicked him in the shins. And, and then I, 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 I hissed as I drove by the publisher of that 
drivel. It's like, really? Safely through another week? The seven-day week is an institution of God. God has brought us on our way. Let us now a blessing seek, waiting in his courts today. John Newton is taking court language from the Psalms, and he's going all the way over here to the 18th century when he wrote it. And he's talking about the first day of the week. Waiting in his courts today, day of all the week the best. Okay, how many days in a week? Seven. He's identifying one day as the best. Why? Emblem of eternal rest. What does he mean by that? An emblem, a now present emblem of something future. We get a weekly reminder of something future on the first day of every week. What is, that's why he calls it day uh, of all the week the best because there's only one day in the week that is an emblem of eternal rest. Now he's saying the first day of the week functions that way. Two weeks ago I argued the seventh day of the week functioned that way when the first creation was accomplished. And I also hinted at this. So if we get a new creation accomplished, there can be another emblem of eternal rest. And our Lord accomplished his work of redemption and then entered into his rest or his glory on the first day of the week. The new creation having been, at least the foundation of it, laid in his work. Let's keep going with uh, John Newton or else I'll never finish. While we pray for pardoning grace, through the dear Redeemer's name, show thy reconciled face, take away our sin and shame, from our worldly cares set free, may we rest this day in thee. Here we come by name to praise, thy name to praise. Let us feel thy presence near. May thy glory meet our eyes while we in thy house Appear. Now he uses both Old and New Testament language with reference to the temple and the church. The church, the house of God, which is the church of the living God, 1 Timothy 3. So now he's using both Old and New Testament. He's obviously talking about church gatherings on the first day of the week. Here afford us, Lord, a taste of our everlasting feast. Lord, it's the Lord's day. We're asking you to help us taste of that day. Give us, uh, afford us a taste of our everlasting feast. And may thy gospel's joyful sound conquer sinners, comfort saints. May the fruits of grace abound, bring relief for all complaints. Thus may all our Sabbaths prove till we join the church above. See what he just did? He identified the Lord's Day as the Christian Sabbath. And he didn't use those words. Okay, but those words are all over the history of the church. Very interesting hymn. I think he's right to do all this stuff. Emblem of eternal rest. While we in thy house appear, a taste of our everlasting feast, till we join the church above. So this is a hymn that reflects uh, older doctrine of the fourth commandment. Namely, for Christians, there is a Sabbath. Is it the Jewish Sabbath? Is it the same as the Sabbath under the older Mosaic covenant? No. Is it still a Sabbath, a day to be 
distinct from other days where we don't do our normal things unless there's emergencies and, and works of mercy and necessity. I, I get all that. But there's a pushback to all this that the, the origin of the Sabbath is from God at creation. Because, because if, you, if you come to grips with that, cre- uh, the Sabbath is a creational ordinance just like marriage and labor for man as man even before he sinned and for man as man after he sinned then you have to deal with the fact that marriage and labor are clearly seen throughout Scripture as as ordinances for all men. And if those are grounded on creation, and those are creational ordinances, and if the Sabbath is a creational ordinance, then you'd have to say, well, like marriage, like labor, somehow, someway, Sabbath is an ordinance for all men. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath, Jesus in Mark chapter 2. So I argued the origin of the Sabbath, God at creation from Genesis 2, 1 through 3. And the big argument toward the end was that whatever this divine rest is, if the divine work is a paradigm, if God is the divine exemplar that man is to follow according to his creaturely abilities, then the divine rest must be the same because God doesn't get tired, God doesn't need to go eat food, God doesn't need to go sleep. Whatever rest means, it can't mean sleep and God's tired and so he goes someplace for, you know, divine energy. The, the gas station that has divinity in its tubes and tanks. There's no such thing. God executes divine power without depleting divine power. So this rest has to be some sort of a symbol of some sort of completion of man's work because God completed his work, man is to complete his work and then enter rest, enter a better state of existence than his created state of existence. Now there's pushback to that. There are some who disagree with the creational institution of the Sabbath and I would like to address that objection. The objection is stated in many ways, but here's one way. This is a, this is a polemic sermon. You know what polemic means? It means I'm going to stand against somebody else's claim of, of, of scriptural interpretation. So I'm going to yell at them, spit at them, hiss at them, make fun of them. No, I'm not going to do that. The best way to do a polemical sermon, stand against somebody else's assertion and try to argue something different, is to get their claim clear. Not a straw man. State it very clearly in its strongest form and then deal with it, okay? So anything else, Christians shouldn't do polemics that way. So here's the objection. The Sabbath began with the Jews, And it ends with the abrogation of the covenant with the Jews. The Sabbath began with the Jews either at Mount Sinai or in the wilderness wanderings. We'll read the sections in Exodus that deal with that. So it began with the Jews and it ends when their covenant is abrogated. When was their covenant abrogated? By virtue of its fulfillment through our Lord Jesus Christ. The abrogation of the new covenant happened in the first century. Therefore, since the Sabbath is connected to that covenant, it's gone. 
Okay, that's, that's, that's the objection. There is no record of anyone obeying the Sabbath law prior to the explicit revelation of the fourth commandment on Mount Sinai, and this is because the fourth commandment is for ancient Jews and ancient Jews alone, something like that, okay? So here's my, my pushback to that, um, my answer to that objection. Let's listen to, go over to Exodus 20 first. We were there two weeks ago. We're going to be there briefly today. Exodus 20, you remember the words in verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That's the, that's the command, the fourth commandment stated by Moses, which God originally wrote on stone tablets. tablets. Now note the word remember. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. There's, there's two ways we could take the word remember. One is, now that you know about this, don't forget about it in the future. This is a new thing but remember it in the future. You can't recall this as something I already revealed because I haven't. But now that I have, remember it in the future, okay? It's like telling your child, here's the rule, now remember it. You've never stated the rule before, but now you're stating the rule and you're saying remember it. Now, that's one way to take this, I think a minority view over the entirety of the Christian church is that. I think it's a very small minority. Paul, you, uh, Paul, Moses uses that same word like 27 times in, 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 in all of his writings. And I, I, I looked at all of them several years ago. I, I forgot the number, but by far majority don't refer to, recall this in the future, this thing that I'm for the first time ever telling you to do. Instead, it's, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Yeah, in the future, but remember that you've already been told there's a Sabbath day and you are to keep it holy. I think that's the best way to do, to understand it. And this is strengthened in Exodus 28 through 11 itself. Look at verse 11. For in six days, okay, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Why? For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth. Ah. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. What's the basis for remembering the Sabbath day to keep it holy? Something God did a long time ago. He doesn't say remember the Sabbath day for I'm telling you to remember it. Right? It says, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now the word for makes verse 11 the basis for the simple statement of the fourth commandment found in verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy for... Note as well, Exodus 20.11 refers both to God's rest and a Sabbath for man. Look at verse 11. The first part of verse 11 depicts for us divine acts, right? In six days the Lord made. That's, those are divine acts. God is doing something. He's making the heavens and the earth. Matter of fact, we're told that he made the heavens and the earth. And then, and rested a divine act as well on the seventh day. The second part of verse 11 draws a conclusion. Therefore, since God did that way back in Genesis 
1 and 2, recorded for us in Genesis 1 and 2. Since God did that, therefore, back then, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day. When did he bless it? When he first wrote it on stone tablets. Nope. After he finished the work of creation. That's when he blessed the seventh day. When did he make it holy? When he wrote it on stone tablets. Nope. Back when he blessed it. When did he bless it? When he ceased working the work of creation. How do we know it? God tells us in Genesis 2, 1 through 3. Can't, can, you can hear Genesis 2, 1 through 3 in this very verse. I think that's what Moses is doing. He's saying, hey, by the way, this thing goes way back, just like marriage, just like labor. By the way, most people that believe in labor as a creational institution have to de- deal with the fact that this Sabbath commandment has both labor and Sabbath or rest together in it. And the first time you have both labor and rest for both God and, and creatures is in Genesis 1 and 2. So it seems clear Moses is, is recalling what we read in Genesis 1 and 2, and he's saying it has ethical implications, and it had ethical implications from the beginning. That's when God blessed it and made it holy. So when was the Sabbath instituted? When God blessed the seventh day. When did he bless the seventh day? Immediately after he finished his work of creation in the space of six days. When did the Sabbath become holy? When God blessed it immediately after his work of creation. I think I quoted that Puritan John Owen from the 17th century when he says this. It is in the Decalogue, in the Ten Commandments, it is the day of the Sabbath or God's rest and ours. When was the Sabbath day blessed and made holy? When God ceased his work of creation and made it, excuse me, and rested. Therefore, the origin of the Sabbath is creational, not merely and exclusively mosaic and, and uh, with, with ancient Israel in that temporary covenant with God. So the Sabbath is a creation ordinance. That might be new for some of you. It's grounded in, in God's acts of work and rest at creation. The Sabbath is like labor and like marriage. Uh, it is from the beginning, you remember Matthew 19, where there Jesus is going toe-to-toe with, with Pharisees or scribes, or, or, or both, I'm not sure. Um, and they're talking about divorce, and he said, yeah, but God permitted it because of the hard, uh, hardness of your heart. But monogamy, one man, one woman for life, is what God intended from the beginning. So Jesus goes back to the beginning, the creation account, and he says, there's a principle there that is creational and abides to this day. Same goes for the Sabbath. Now, somebody might object to this view of Exodus 20. They say, ah, but you missed something. Exodus 16 seems to indicate the Sabbath was revealed to the Jews before Sinai. So let's turn there because that is the case. So we go back from Exodus 20 to Exodus 16. It's an important passage, very important. And it's fascinating it, uh, as we consider this subject. 
Exodus 16 is an important passage in this discussion because it's actually the first time in the Old Testament the word Sabbath is used. God rested is not the word Sabbath in Genesis 2. But in Exodus 20, when God rested, he sanctified and blessed it. What is it? The Sabbath. Interesting. But this is actually the first time the word is used. And also, this is important due to the specific context in which this Sabbath occurs. Israel is in wandering out in the wilderness And this is before they get to Sinai. After Sinai, Moses takes them to the other side of the Jordan River, dies. Joshua takes them to the promised land. So this is a Sabbath after their exodus revealed to them in the wilderness before Mount Sinai and the two stone tablets. We read there in verse 22. Now on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one. When all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, then he said to them, this is what the Lord meant or commanded, I think most, or said would be most of the translations. We'll get back to this word later. Tomorrow is a Sabbath observance, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil and all that is left over put aside to be kept until morning. So they put it aside until morning as Moses had ordered and it did not become foul nor was there any worm in it. Moses said, eat it today for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. So this passage indicates that the Sabbath goes back at least to the events recorded in Exodus 16. Fair enough. I think that's pretty clear. This is before Exodus 20. This is before Mount Sinai. This is before that which is behind Mount Sinai, God riding on the two stone tablets. This predates Mount Sinai. Like other of the Ten Commandments, the fourth gets some press prior to Exodus 20. Right? Because this is prior to Exodus 20. This seems to be the fourth commandment. In Exodus 16, prior to that which God wrote on stone tablets, and prior to the inauguration of the Mosaic or Old Covenant, which is actually formally inaugurated by blood, according to Exodus 24, after Sinai, Israel obeyed some sort of a Sabbath law by resting on the seventh day. God, however, indicted some Israelites for not keeping the Sabbath commands commandment with these words. Uh, this is verses 28 and 29. These are important. How long do you, plural, you people, how long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my instructions, uh, Torah, law? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Now, you think that's, this is a new command? How long are you going to disobey this? Could you hear Moses saying, Lord, you're just revealing it. What do you mean, how long are they going to disobey this? It's a brand spanking new thing. Nobody ever heard about it before. It starts with us. It's going to end with us in the future. Lighten up. Why are you so mad? How long? Now notice in verse 23 again, this is before 28 and 29, this is what the Lord meant. Some of your versions say commanded or said. 
God had said or commanded these very words or something close to them at some point prior to the events that are narrated for us. So the events, the narration of the event actually assumes words that God spoke similar to the words in the narration before Moses writes about it. Okay, we need to get everybody a cup of coffee. This is kind of mind, you know, stretching. You got to really think here. It is clear that God had previously spoken and previously instituted some sort of Sabbath for which ancient Israel was accountable prior to the Sinai and the inauguration of what we call the Older Mosaic Covenant. Now, notice carefully what Moses records in Exodus 16:28. How long do you refuse to keep my commandments? It seems to me that the violation of God's law in this specific content context seems to be a recurrent thing, right? Sounds like it. How long is this going to keep happening? It's already happened for a while. Now it's happening again. Listen to a 17th century commentator, Matthew Poole, says, he signifies that this was an old disease in them to disobey God's precepts and to pollute his Sabbaths. See what he's saying there? At some point before we read about this incident, Moses and the people heard about some sort of Sabbath for them, and they're constantly disobeying God's precepts. Now, here's Poole again, turning back to Exodus 16, 23. He says, that, this is that which the Lord had said. And then he says, either to Moses by inspiration or to the former patriarchs. So it was passed on from patriarchs, you know, Abraham, Isaac, Isaac Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, you know the order, uh, the patriarchs, and they, like the patriarchs, continually to disobey it. Now, we're not told when or to whom the Lord had spoken about the Sabbath. The explicit language used, a Sabbath observance, a holy Sabbath, however, implies that it predates Exodus 16. So we've argued so far it predates the formal inauguration of the covenant, which occurs with the shedding of blood in Exodus 20. It predates the promulgation of the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, which Moses delineates for us in Exodus 20. It goes back to at least Exodus 16, but now the narrative seems to give us warrant to conclude it actually predates that. It's important to take into account uh, other things here, but since I'm going slow in the notes, I'm going to go uh, just read two verses and then make a comment. 16, 4, and 5. Look at these words. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. Now listen to, to another commentator on this. Here is no mention of the Sabbath nor any reason given why they should gather a double portion on the sixth day. This command, therefore, must needs have seemed somewhat strange unto them if they had not, if they had before no notion at all of a seventh day's sacred rest. 
You know, this is just all brand spanking new. And they knew nothing about, or if these words were spoken, but they knew nothing about some sort of seventh day rest. These words wouldn't make sense. He said, this was John Owen. In order to make sense of them, you have to ground the Sabbath, actually go all the way back to creation. Now, for these reasons and others, I think it's best to understand Exodus 16 as assuming that the institution of the Sabbath predated the events recorded there. Uh, so we could say this, the Sabbath commandment or law is not uniquely and exclusively an ordinance of the Mosaic Covenant. Take a deep breath. The Sabbath as a divine institution for man transcends, goes beyond the bounds of the covenant God enacted through Moses with ancient Israel. That was fulfilled and abrogated at the cross of our Lord. Just like labor and marriage transcend that covenant, go outside the bounds of it, so Sabbath goes outside the bounds of that covenant as well. Now, this, this understanding, you might say, well, I never heard this before. I've heard Exodus 16, some sort of Sabbath, but I've never heard anyone say it actually, the, the narrative itself in Exodus 16 leads us to the conclusion that this Sabbath thing predates what's being narrated. Well, sorry if you've never heard that, but it's not a new interpretation. This understanding of the Sabbath as predating the wilderness generation is not new, nor does it find its first expression in the 17th century. Because if you're listening here and you're going, I don't know, all you're doing is quoting 17th century guys, I can tell you this, I won't read the quote, but John Owen, a 17th century guy, argues that some ancient Jewish scholars said the same thing. Exodus 16 implies some sort of Sabbath already being instituted. Jews, not Christians, and not Puritans. Owen's claims held the view. So this view has a long history. Can I say this? The new kid on the block is the new view that says, oh, it's only exclusively a Jewish thing. Now, I know some people struggle still. Uh, for instance, I had a buddy in seminary, and when some of us were starting to read the Banner of Truth books and going, uh-oh, the there's more to the fourth commandment than we thought, uh, he was saying, what are you talking about? We're going to be like the, my Jewish neighbor back in Massachusetts? And I said, well, what are you talking about? He says, yeah, on Saturdays, he didn't want to break the Sabbath, so between Sabbath services or whatever, when, while he's watching TV, he'd make us come over to his house, house like every hour to change the channel for him because he didn't want to break the Sabbath. Is that what we're going to do? I said, oh, no, therefore you must be right. All these old guys are wrong. No, I didn't say that. I, said, I, I don't think that's what we're going to do. Called the neighbor. Hey, can you come and change the TV station for me? It's the Lord's Day. You know where I'm going with this? I'm going to say, why even turn the TV on on the Lord's Day? Then you don't have to deal with that. You can read Banner of Truth books and take a nap and have family worship and go to public worship and not have to worry about all that other stuff. And anyway, I'm 
going, getting ahead of myself. Now, some argue, wait a minute, it predates even the wilderness wandering passage? Yes, I say. And they say, yes, but the account prior to that is silent. You hear that put argument? That's an objection. Okay, well, grant, it predates Exodus 20. It's in Exodus 16, but there's silence before that. If you read Genesis uh, 3, 1 and following, all the way to 16, there's no mention of a Sabbath. How many times does Genesis 3, 1 through Exodus 16 contain these words? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Zero. Now, who wants to say, therefore, Nobody on the earth was required to love their neighbor as themselves until Moses pinned Leviticus 19.18 or 18.19. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But before that, you didn't have to do that. I don't think you want to go that way. And if you do, you need to rethink your thinking. So silence often uh, proves too much because it doesn't work with other things that are clearly uh, responsibilities of man, even though the text in the early parts of Genesis, doesn't say those words uh, explicitly. Here's somebody else. There's, uh, on the argument from silence, there's no record in the history of Genesis that the first patriarchs held to the observance of the seventh day as holy. But this is no hindrance. First, all and everything observed by them for 1,500 years neither could nor ought to have been set down in particular in so short a history as that found in Genesis. Thus, though the law of the Sabbath was delivered by Moses, no mention is made of its observance in the book of Judges. But Judges comes after Moses. Silence proves it's not there. The book of Judges comes after the Mosaic legislation. We already know it's there, but Judges doesn't say anything about it. Therefore, it's not there. Thank you for that look. That was the look I just got. That's a good look for this argument. But if you give me that look on other things, we're going to talk later. So the argument from silence is not good. Here's another text. I push back on this. Uh, the Sabbath started with the Jews exclusively. Math, uh, Mark 2, 27 and 28. And he was saying to them, this is Jesus, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. That's a huge statement. And the next one's massive as well. Consequently, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Okay, now the Pharisees that would have been hearing this are going, the Sabbath is God's. And Jesus would say, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Pharisees could say, Yahweh is Lord of the Sabbath. And Jesus would say, yes, I am. But notice the first statement. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So you have man being made, then something made for him. When was man made, or when did we first read about man being made? Genesis 1 and 2. 
Man was made, and a Sabbath was made for man. Ultimately, who's the first man that he's talking about? Adam. What was made for Adam? The Sabbath that doesn't predate him but comes after him for his good, for his benefit. So he doesn't just sit here and work, work all the time. There's a cycle just as God is the divine exemplar in working in creation and in resting, this royal rest I called it, so man is to follow his maker according to his creaturely capacities and labor or work six days and then and then not do what he does on the other days, do something different. It's a huge claim by our Lord to be the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, some people take this, yeah, he can, he's the Lord of it, to throw it away. Now, Theoretically, could Jesus be Lord of the Sabbath in the sense of burying it in the tomb and leaving it there, killing it, destroying it? And the answer is, well, yeah. But he's also Lord of time. You know, the, the measure of creaturely change. That's a weird definition of time, but I think it's something like that. What is time? The measure of creaturely change. And he's also Lord of the accounting for time, seven-day week. But he doesn't leave time and the seven-day week in the grave. When he comes out after the grave, his people are meeting one day a week and not meeting on that one day a week, the rest of the week, because there's actually a full week, okay? Not every day is the Lord's day. You know, some people say, well, every, every day is the Lord's day. Tell John, the apostle, that in Revelation 1.10. I was in the Spirit every day of the week. No, he said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Is every day from the Lord? Well, yeah. Is every meal from the Lord? Well, yeah. Is every day the Lord's day? We'll know. Is every meal or supper the Lord's supper? We'll know. And I can get a little cheeky and say, wow, in the New Testament, there's a distinction of days and distinction of food. And drink, by the way. Holy days and holy food, even in the New Testament. I'm getting way ahead of myself. But you see what Mark 2 does. It says, well, he doesn't say the Sabbath was made for the Jews at Sinai or the Sabbath was made for the Jews only when they were formally in covenant with God by the shedding of the animals' bloods recorded for us in Exodus 24 or the Sabbath was made for the Jews first instituted in Exodus 16. He says the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is our servant. We aren't its servants. It's for our good. It came after us for our benefit. Here's another text. It's the last one. Some of you are going, yeah, right, it's the last one. It's too early for it being the last one. In theory, it's the last one. It's in Hebrews 4, 9, and 10. And this is the New American Standard Translation. And in, I think, three or four weeks, I will finally get there, okay, to do an exposition in context. But listen to these words in Hebrews 4, 9, and 10. Therefore... Or there remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest. Most translations say just rest. 
and I'll tell you why I think it's best, Sabbath rest. This is New American Standard. There remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. You see the word therefore? It connects verses 9 and 10 with the previous section, and someday I'll show you what the connection means. But it's basically this. Since this has happened and this has happened, and since something ultimately hasn't happened, therefore, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. That word Sabbath rest, sabbatismos, the only time used in the New Testament, used many times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Some of you have heard of that before. The Septuagint, the LXX, which means 70, which is a theory that 70 Jewish scholars translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek about the second century BC. They use the word sabbatismos in very interesting passages. It's always Sabbath keeping, a Sabbath doing, doing something on a particular day of the week. Paul, I think, wrote Hebrews and he uses that word, I think, purposely. There remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Does he say there remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the Jews? No, it's for the people of God. You weren't, you weren't a, God's people, but now you are the people of God. First Peter 2.10, I think it is. People of God is the people of God who live on this side of the cross and resurrection of our, of, uh, this side of the cross and resurrection of the Savior. That's what that phrase means. People of God, the now people of God, under the inaugurated new covenant by virtue of the shedding of the blood of Christ. There remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for Christians. For, verse 10, that's a very important word. What's the basis for this remaining Sabbath rest for the people of God? For, this is very interesting, because look at work and rest here. You're going to see the words, work and rest, work and rest. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his, okay? So there's the paradigm is God at creation, working and then entering into his rest. Why does there remain a Sabbath rest now for the now people of God, this side of the cross and resurrection of Christ? I would say all the way to the second coming of Christ because somebody has entered his rest and has himself also rested from his works. Somebody entered his rest and doesn't, uh, um, doesn't work anymore, at least likely used to work. Somebody worked and then entered into rest just as God did also from his. Who do you think he's talking about there? The basis for a continuing Sabbath rest for the now people of God is that someone has entered his rest from work, just as God did at creation. God entered into rest from work. Somebody else has entered into rest from his work. And the parallel is between this one, I think it's an individual, and God at creation. So what do we have here? I think we have the, we have a, we have a, we have the new creation, the work of new creation, salvation. Anyone is in Christ, he's new creation. Okay? We have new creation language, uh, he finished his work, therefore he completed the work of new creation. Redemption was accomplished. And then by virtue of reward, he enters into glory. He suffers and he enters into glory. He suffers and he's raised on the third day. He works 
Then he enters into his rest. What do we have here? We have a new creation and a new creation rest. What day did he enter into his rest? On the first day of the week by virtue of his resurrection. That's why the older Christians called the Lord's Day, Sunday, the first day of the week, the Christian Sabbath. What's what's the Sabbath part about it? Well, it's one and six. It's not six and one. Now it's one and six. That's the same principle that goes all the way back to creation. But it's not seventh day. It's first day. Why? Because we have a, we have a new creation that's come into existence through the redemptive work of the Savior. And on the first day, God said, let there be light. And there was light. And there was evening and morning on the first day. The first day is a pretty big day starting out in the, in the creation itself. So because somebody has entered his rest, just as God did at creation, there's therefore a, a remaining Sabbath keeping for the people of God, for Christians. There is therefore a Christian Sabbath. Now, there's pushback to this as well. Okay, so the first pushback was on the origin of the Sabbath. It doesn't start at creation, it starts with the Jews. I've tried to say I appreciate the pushback. I understand the argument. I don't think it fits the totality of the word of God. So then somebody will say, all right, maybe it goes back to creation. But there are verses in the New Testament that are clearly referring to no Sabbath for Christians. Romans 14 seems to be that way. Galatians 4 seems to be that way. And especially Colossians 2. Okay. I'll deal with that next time. But let's just think about that. Somebody says, all right, maybe it started at creation. Then it was incorporated into the Jewish legislation. But the New Testament says for Christians, for the people of God, this side of the cross and resurrection of Christ, nobody can be your judge about Sabbath days. And I'll say, or new moons, or festivals, because that's Colossians 2.16. And if your blood's bibbling... If you know the Old Testament well, you're going, I've heard those. Matter of fact, I've heard that triad of terms before. All three of them put together in that order more than once. If you're thinking that way, it's because you've read the Old Testament. And so I'm going to say, you can't understand the New Testament passages that seem to do away with all this unless you understand their, the roots in the Old Testament. Because as I said to my wife on the way here, if you read the Old Testament carefully, it totally, uh, it has prophetic language that abrogates Sabbath when Christ comes. It's very clear. But if you read the Old Testament carefully, especially in the prophets, it prophesies a Sabbath during the days of Christ. So the Old Testament prophets say, hey, in the future when the Messiah comes, no Sabbath. Hey, in the future when Messiah comes, Sabbath. My wife looked at me, huh? How can they do both? Because they do, and I'll show you. Well, maybe they distinguish. Maybe it's something like what John Bunyan said about Isaiah 56. I think it's verse 8. This is the Sabbath that the Lord Jesus would institute for his church, basically, on this side of the resurrection, namely 
the first day of the week. So if somebody asks me, how could there be a change in the day? I'll say, Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, the worker whose work, when it was completed, is described sometimes by the New Testament as a work of creation or new creation. You are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. There is this new creational language that's used in Ephesians 2.10 there. If you're in Christ Jesus, you're his workmanship. You've been created in Christ Jesus. That doesn't refer to your initial existence. That refers to a new existence united to Christ. That's a new creational. That's a, the work of renovation, not ovation or vation or whatever the, the opposite of renovation is. You know what renovation is. We're jalopies. We're old. We got parts missing or worn out. We're up on st- blocks and we need, a, we need a new engine. We need a, a renovated uh, transmission and, and suspension system and all that stuff. And what, do, what doesn't happen is that we're glorified at regeneration, but we are renewed. There is a work of creation that goes on, new creation that goes on when you get saved. If anyone is in Christ, new creation. All things have, the old things have passed away. All things become new. So that the next objection will be um, in two weeks or six months, whenever I'll be back. This is ending, this traveling thing. You know, our, our, our tour ends soon, honey. Our concert tour ends soon. Uh, but, but it's an objection. You've got you to you, you hear it. The New Testament's very clear. No one can judge me about this stuff. And it is. And my pushback, not pushback, but my comeback is, what stuff are you talking about? Because if you're talking about Sabbath days, new moons and festivals, you want to do those things, do them if you want. But that's all connected with the older Mosaic Covenant. So that's the way that goes. Now, let me say this. If you're in Christ... You are a new creation. You're a part of this new creation that isn't present in its fullness when the Sabbath of everlasting rest will be fully inaugurated. You are a part of the kingdom of God now. There's some already stuff that we get, the Holy Spirit, as the down payment, as the pledge of more grace to come. Aren't you glad that when Christ comes, we get more grace and more mercy? We get eschatologized. We get brought into the eternal state. We get to have a kingly rest that only Christ enjoys now. But now we have a seven-day week. And we have this thing we call the Lord's Day. Why do we call it the Lord's Day? God calls it the Lord's Day in in Revelation 1.10. And it should be the worst, most depressing, negative experience of the entire week. The Lord's Day should be horrible for you. It's It's the Christian Sabbath. We should be sad. We should be mad. We should be angry. We should feel cheated. Somebody give me a face. Like, stop it. 
Shouldn't it be like just the opposite? It shouldn't be like, Lord, thank you for the emblem of eternal rest. Someday, someday, we're not there. You know, we're not in the eternal state. You know how I know? I just do a little self-examination, I conclude. If this is glory, it's not very glorious. Uh, we're not in the eternal state. We have this emblem of eternal rest that recurs on this cycle instituted originally at creation that reminds us that this, you know, in one sense, we're, this world we're just passing through. It's a wilderness that we're passing through. And someday we're going we're gonna to go get out of the wilderness and cross cross a river, cross the Jordan, and we're going to go into the ultimate promised land, which, by the way, was a rest that God gave Israel that they failed in as well. So whatever that rest at creation ultimately pointed to, Israel failed to enter it. Jesus didn't, though. For all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. For everyone starting with Adam has evil works and did not have Good works unto rest. But God sent his son who worked good works unto the blessing of rest. And every Lord's Day we get to say, amen, Lord Jesus, um, come, you know, something like that. So that's why, I, that's why these old guys said, this should be the best day of the week. You get, your, you, get, you get the gospel beat into your head every single week. Martin Luther said that. I didn't say that. I'm quoting Martin Luther. Everybody loves Luther, except when he says things like that. Why should we beat the gospel into our people's heads every week? I think Luther said something like that because they're a lot like the preacher. They tend to forget it. And so we're reminded of glorious things. I need to land the plane, but you get it, right? Uh, it should be the best day of the week, because it is. It's an emblem of eternal rest. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for your word. These are uh, heavy and hard issues to sort through. There's so many details, so many pieces of the puzzle that we have to put together slowly but surely to start to see the glorious picture. Yes, there was uh, laws added to the fourth commandment under the older Mosaic covenant that we think were temporary, just as with other commands in the Ten Commandments. No, we don't want to conclude that the Lord's Day uh, is should be viewed by us as as uh, heaven restricting us from uh, having a full life. We want to look at it instead, and we want you to make it that way, to fulfill our lives, to make us more holy, to make us more glad to be Christians, to make us long for the, that which this temporary emblem looks toward, a new heavens, a new earth in which dwells only righteousness. Help us now as we sing in response. To this we ask in Jesus' name, amen.